This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. A range of reports on this occasion, as we start in the 18th century with a report on the solar eclipse, and also Boswell talking about Johnson. We move on to some reports from the Telegraph of VE Day, and we conclude with Mark Twain talking about Americans abroad. This is Witnesses of History, and we start in 1724 on the 10th of May with William Stukeley's report of a solar eclipse. According to my promise, I sent you what I observed of the solar eclipse, though I fear it will not be of any great use to you. I was not prepared with any instruments for measuring time or the like, and proposed to myself only to watch all the appearances that nature would present to the naked eye on so remarkable an occasion, and which generally are overlooked, or but grossly regarded. I chose for my station a place called Harrodon Hill, two miles eastward from Amsbury, and full east from the opening of Stonehenge Avenue, to which it is as the point of view. Before me lay the vast plain where that celebrated work stands, and I knew that the eclipse would appear directly over it. Beside, I had the advantage of a very extensive prospect every way, this being the highest hill hereabouts, and nearest the middle of the shadow. Full west of me and beyond Stonehenge is a pretty cocked hill, like the top of a cone lifting itself above the horizon. This is Clay Hill near Warminster, 20 miles distant, and near the central line of darkness which must come from thence so that I could have noticed enough beforehand of its approach. Abraham Sturgis and Stephen Ewins, both of this place and sensible men, were with me. Though it was very cloudy, yet now and then we had gleams of sunshine rather more than I could perceive at any other place around us. These two persons looking through smoked glass while I was taking some bearings of the country with a circumferenter both confidently affirmed the eclipse was begun, when by my watch I found it just half an hour after five, and accordingly from thence the progress of it was visible, and very often to the naked eye, the thin clouds doing the office of glasses. From the time of the sun's body being half covered, there was a very conspicuous circular iris around the sun with perfect colours. On all sides we beheld the shepherds hurrying their flocks unto fold, the darkness coming on, for they expected nothing less than a total eclipse for an hour and a quarter. When the sun looked very sharp like a new moon, the sky was pretty clear in the spot, but soon after a thicker cloud covered it, at which time the iris vanished. The copped hill before mentioned grew very dark, together with the horizon on both sides, that is, to the north and south, and looked blue, just as it appears in the east at the declension of day. We had scarce time to tell, then when Salisbury steeple, six miles off southward, became very black, the copped hill became quite lost, and a most gloomy night with full career came upon us. At this instant we lost sight of the sun, whose place among the clouds was hitherto sufficiently distinguishable, but now not the least trace of it to be found, no more than if really absent. Then I saw by my watch, though with difficulty and only by help of some light from the northern quarter, that it was six hours thirty-five minutes. Just before this the whole compass of the heavens and earth looked of lurid complexion, properly speaking, for it was black and blue. 
Only on the earth upon the horizon the blue prevailed. There was likewise in the heavens among the clouds much green interspersed, so that the whole appearance was really very dreadful and as symptoms of sickening nature. Now I perceived, as involved in total darkness and palpable, as I may aptly call it, though it came quick, yet I was so intent that I could perceive its steps and feel as it were a drop upon us and fall on the right shoulder. We were looking westward like a great dark mantle or coverlet of a bed thrown over us or like the drawing of a curtain on that side. And the horses we held in our hands were very sensible of it and crowded close to us, startling with great surprise. As much as I could see of the men's faces that stood by me, they had a horrible aspect. At this instant, I looked around me, not without exclamation of admiration, and could discern colours in the heavens, but the earth had lost its blue and was wholly black. For some time among the clouds, there were visible streaks of rays tending to the place of the sun at the centre, but immediately after, the whole appearance of the earth and sky was entirely black. Of all things I ever saw in my life, or can by imagination fancy, it was a sight the most tremendous. James Boswell, on the 10th of May, 1773, reports on Dr Johnson's playfulness. He maintained the dignity and propriety of male succession, in opposition to the opinion of one of our friends, Bennett Langton, who had that day employed Mr Chambers to draw his will, devising his estate to his three sisters, in preference to a remote heir male. Johnson called them three dowdies and said, with as high a spirit as the boldest baron in the most perfect days of the feudal system, an ancient estate should always go to males. It is mighty foolish to let a stranger have it because he marries your daughter and takes your name. As for an estate newly acquired by trade, you may give it, if you will, to the dog Towser and let him keep his own name. I have known him at times exceedingly diverted at what seemed to others a very small sport. He now laughed immoderately, without any reason that we could perceive, at our friend's making his will, called him the testator and added, I dare say he thinks he has done a mighty thing. He won't stay till he gets home to his seat in the country to produce this wonderful deed. He'll call up the landlord of the first inn on the road and, after a suitable preface upon mortality and the uncertainty of life, will tell him that he should not delay making his will. And here, sir, he will say, is my will, which I've just made, with the assistance of one of the ablest lawyers in the kingdom, and he will read it to him, laughing all the time. He believes he has made this will, but he did not make it. You, Chambers, made it for him. I trust you have had more conscience than to make him say, being of sound understanding, ha, ha, I hope he has left me a legacy. I'd have his will turned into verse, like a ballad. In this playful manner did he run on, exulting in his own pleasantry, which certainly was not such as might be expected from the author of The Rambler, but which is here preserved that my readers may be acquainted even with the slightest occasional characteristics of so eminent a man. Mr Chambers did not by any means relish this jocularity upon a matter of which par magna fui, he was no small part, and seems impatient till he got rid of us. Johnson could not stop his merriment, but continued it all the way till he got without the temple gate. He then burst into such a fit of laughter that he appeared to be almost in a convulsion, and in order to support himself laid hold of one of the posts at the side of the foot pavement, and sent forth Peagle so loud that in the silence of the night his voice seemed to resound from Temple Mar to Fleet Ditch. 
And now from May 1945 and the Daily Telegraph reports of the ending of the war in Europe. May the 5th from Christopher Buckley, the Telegraph's special correspondent on Loonberg Heath, Hill 79, on the previous day, May the 4th. At 6.25 this evening, in a tent on a windswept heath over grey, lowering clouds, five German plenipotentiaries, in the presence of Field Marshal Montgomery, put their signatures to the surrender of the German armies of the north. This is the end. The capitulation of Lundberg practically puts an end to the Second Thirty Years' War, the war which began in August 1914 and continued through the period of uneasy peace and the second and more deadly phase. Yesterday, a forward party of four high military officials hoisted a white flag and drove into the British lines. The head of the party was General Admiral von Friedeberg, Colonel-in-Chief of the German Navy, who replaced Admiral Dönitz when the latter assumed the title of Führer. Friedeberg's rank also carried the title of General of the Army. He was thus able to negotiate for the ground forces as well. With him was General Keinzel, Rear Admiral Wagner and Major Freider. They were taken to Field Marshal Montgomery's field headquarters on Loomberg Heath. He stepped out, returned their military not-Nazi salute and said, What do you want? The Germans replied, We come here from Field Marshal Busch to ask you to accept the surrender of three German armies which are now withdrawing in front of the Russians in the Mecklenburg area. We're very anxious about the condition of German civilians who are fleeing as our armies retreat in the path of the Russian advance. We want you to accept the surrender of these three armies. Field Marshal Montgomery rejected their offer. Those armies are fighting the Russians, he said. If they surrender to anyone, it must be to the forces of the Soviet. I have nothing to do with the eastern flank. It is the business of the Russians. The subject is closed. When Field Marshal Montgomery asked, are you prepared to surrender the German forces on my northern and western flank? The Germans said no. They added that they were anxious about the conditions of the German civilians on the northern flank. Field Marshal Montgomery produced his operational map. The German commanders were shocked, astounded by the progress of the Allies in the east and the west. They were sent off to lunch alone. General Admiral Friedeberg burst into tears when he got out of sight and wept throughout lunch. The Germans were called back for further consultation and Field Marshal Montgomery delivered his ultimatum. He told them, you must understand three things. You must surrender to me unconditionally all the German forces in Holland, Friedland and the Frisian Islands and in Heligoland and all other islands and also Schleswig-Holstein, and in Denmark. If you do not agree to this first point, I will go on with the war and will be delighted to do so. All your soldiers and civilians may be killed. The Germans said they had no authority to agree to the British demands, but they agreed that two of them would remain behind while the other two presented the new terms of surrender to their superiors. At 4pm yesterday, General Admiral Friedeberg and Major Freider went out with the news. They returned about five o'clock this afternoon with the complete acceptance of the unconditional surrender terms. Field Marshal Montgomery kept the party waiting. Finally, wearing an immaculate British field battle dress, he came down the path. He grinned at reporters and said out of the corner of his mouth, This is the moment. He carried the surrender papers in his right hand. And from a few days later, on May the 9th, Mr Churchill 
had the greatest reception of his career when he appeared on the balcony of the Ministry of Health building just before 6pm yesterday to be acclaimed by a crowd estimated at more than 50,000 stretching from below the Cenotaph down Whitehall and overflowing into Parliament Square. Many in the crowd had waited for hours. Soon after five o'clock, a chorus went up, We want Churchill! Half an hour later, having no luck, they emphasised it to, We want Winston! W-I-N-S-T-O-N! We want Winston! When the Prime Minister appeared on the balcony, the inevitable cigar in his mouth, accompanied by some of his war chiefs and ministers, including Sir Alan Brooke, Admiral Cunningham, Sir Charles Poulter, Sir Archibald Sinclair, Mr Morrison and Mr Bevin, he was welcomed by a mighty roar. Then the Prime Minister, in a strong, firm voice, said, God bless you all. This is your victory, victory of the cause of freedom in every land. In all our long history, we have never seen a greater day than this. The tumultuous response of the crowd held him up for a moment. Then he continued, Everyone has done their bit. Everyone has tried. Neither the long years, nor the dangers, nor the fierce attacks of the enemy have in any way weakened the independent resolve of the British nation. God bless you all. Boy, finally, here is an undated report from 1867, when Mark Twain was sailing on the excursion steamer Quaker City as a travel correspondent for Outer California, California's largest paper. Bad news came. The commandant of the Piraeus came in his boat and said we must either depart or else get outside the harbour and remained imprisoned in our ship under rigid quarantine for 11 days. So we took up the anchor and moved outside to lie a dozen hours or so, taking in supplies and then sailed to Constantinople. It was the bitterest disappointment we'd yet experienced. To lie a whole day in sight of the Acropolis and yet be obliged to go away without visiting Athens. Disappointment was hardly a strong enough word to describe the circumstances. All hands were on deck in the afternoon, with books and maps and glasses trying to determine which narrow rocky ridge was the Areopagus, which sloping hill the Pinks, and which elevation the Museum Hill, and so on. And we got things confused. Discussion became heated and party spirit ran high. Church members were gazing with emotion upon a hill which they said was the one St Paul preached from, and another faction claimed that that hill was Hymettus, and another that it was Pentelicon. After all the trouble, we could be certain of only one thing. The square-topped hill was the Acropolis, and the grand ruin that crowned it was the Parthenon, whose picture we knew in infancy from school books. We inquired of everybody who came near the ship whether there were guards in the Piraeus, whether they were strict, what the chances were of capture should any of us slip ashore, and in case any of us made the venture and were caught, what would be probably done to us? The answers were discouraging. There was a strong guard or police force. The Piraeus was a small town, and any stranger seen in it would surely attract attention. Capture would be certain. The commandant said the punishment would be heavy. When asked how heavy, he said, very severe. That was all we could get out of him. At eleven o'clock at night, when most of the ship's company were abed, four of us stole softly ashore in a small boat, a clouded moon favouring the enterprise, and started two and two and far apart over a low hill, intending to go clear round the Piraeus out of the range of its police. 
Picking our way so stealthily over that rocky, nettle-grown eminence made us feel a good deal as if I were on my way somewhere to steal something. My immediate comrade and I talked in an undertone about quarantine laws and their penalties, but we found nothing cheering in the subject. Seeing no road, we took a tall hill to the left of the distant Acropolis for a mark and steered straight for it over all the obstructions and over a little roughest piece of country that exists anywhere outside the state of Nevada, perhaps. Part of the way, it was covered with small loose stones. We trod on six at a time and they all rolled. Another part of it was dry, loose, newly ploughed ground. Still another part, a long stretch of low grapevines which were tanglesome and troublesome and which we took to be brambles. The attic plain, barring the grapevines, was a barren, desolate, unpoetical waste. I wonder what it was in Greece's age of glory, 500 years before Christ. In the neighbourhood of one o'clock in the morning, when we were heated with fast walking and parched with thirst, Denny exclaimed, Why, these weeds are grapevines! and in five minutes we had a score of bunches of large, white, delicious grapes, and were reaching down for more when a dark shape rose mysteriously up out of the shadows beside us and said, Ho! Oh! And so we left. In ten minutes more we were struck into a beautiful road, and unlike some others we had stumbled upon at intervals, it led in the right direction. We followed it. It was broad, smooth, white, handsome and in perfect repair, and shaded on both sides for a mile or so with single ranks of trees and also luxuriant vineyards. Twice we entered and stole grapes, and the second time somebody shouted us from some invisible place, whereupon we left again. We speculated in grapes no more on that side of Athens. Shortly we came upon an ancient stone aqueduct built upon arches, and from that time forth we had ruins all about us. We were approaching our journey's end. We could not see the Acropolis now, or the higher hill either, and I wanted to follow the road till we were abreast of them, but the others overruled me, and we toiled laboriously up the stony hill immediately in our front, and from its summit saw another, climbed it, and saw another. It was an hour of exhausting work. Soon we came upon a row of open graves cut in the solid rock. For a while one of them served Socrates for a prison, we passed around the shoulder of the hill and the citadel in all its ruined magnificence. It burst upon us. We hurried across the ravine and up a winding road and stood on the old Acropolis, with the prodigious walls of the citadel towering above our heads. We did not stop to inspect their massive blocks of marble or measure their height or guess at their extraordinary thickness, but passed at once through a great arched passage like a railway tunnel and went straight to the gate that leads to the ancient temples. It was locked. So, after all, it seemed that we were not going to see the great Parthenon face to face. We sat down and held a council of war. Result? The gate was only a flimsy structure of wood. We'd break it down. It seemed like desecration, but then we had travelled far and our necessities were urgent. We could not hunt up guides and keepers. We must be on the ship before daylight. So we argued. This was all very fine, but when we came to break the gate... We could not do it. We moved around an angle of the wall and found a low bastion eight feet high without ten or twelve within. Denny prepared to scale it, and we got ready to follow. By dint of hard scrambling he finally straddled the top, but some loose stones crumbled away and fell with a crash into the court within. There was instantly a banging of doors and a shout. Denny dropped from the wall in a twinkling, and we retreated in disorder to the gate. Xerxes took that mighty citadel, 
480 years before Christ, when his five millions of soldiers and camp followers followed him into Greece. And if we four Americans could have remained unmolested five minutes longer, we would have taken it too. The garrison had turned out four Greeks. We clamoured at the gate and they admitted us. Bribery and corruption. We crossed a large court, entered a great door and stood upon a pavement of purest white marble deeply worn by footprints. Before us, in the flooding moonlight, rose the noblest ruins we'd ever looked upon. The Propylia, a small temple of Minerva, the Temple of Hercules and the Grand Parthenon. We got these names from the Greek guide who didn't seem to know more than seven men ought to know. These edifices were all built of the whitest pentelic marble, but have a pinkish stain upon them now. Where any part is broken, however, the fracture looks like fine loaf sugar. Six caryatids, or marble women, clad in flowing robes, support the portico of the Temple of Hercules, but the porticos and colonnades of the other structures are formed of massive Doric and Ionic pillars, whose flutings and capitals are still measurably perfect, notwithstanding the centuries that have gone over them and the sieges they have suffered. The Parthenon originally was 226 feet long, 100 wide and 70 high, and had two rows of great columns, eight in each, at either end, and single rows of 17 down each of the sides, and was one of the most graceful and beautiful edifices ever erected. Most of the Parthenon's imposing columns are still standing, but the roof is gone. It was a perfect building 250 years ago, when a shell dropped into the Venetian magazine stored here, and the explosion which followed wrecked and unroofed it. I remember but little about the Parthenon, and I have put in one or two facts and figures for the use of other people with short memories. Got them from the guidebook. As we wandered thoughtfully down the marble-paved length of this stately temple, the scene about us was strangely impressive. Here and there, in lavish profusion, were gleaming white statues of men and women propped against blocks of marble, some of them armless, some without legs, others headless, but all looking mournful in the moonlight, and startlingly human. They rose up and confronted the midnight intruder on every side. They stared at him with stony eyes from unlooked-for nooks and recesses. They peered at him over fragmentary heaps far down the desolate corridors. They barred his way in the midst of the broad forum and solemnly pointed with handless arms the way from the sacred fane. And through the roofless temple the moon looked down and banded the floor and darkened and scattered fragments and broken statues with the slanting shadows of the columns. The full moon was riding high in the cloudless heavens now. We sauntered carelessly and unthinkingly to the edge of the lofty battlements of the city, citadel, and looked down. A vision. And such a vision. Athens. By moonlight. The prophet that thought the splendours of New Jerusalem were revealed to him surely saw this instead. It lay in the level plain right under our feet, all spread abroad like a picture, and we looked down upon it as we might have looked from a balloon. We saw no semblance of a street, but every house, every window, every clinging vine, every projection was as distinct and sharply marked as if the time were noonday. And yet there was no glare, no glitter, nothing harsh or repulsive. The noiseless city was flooded with the mellowest light that ever streamed from the moon and seemed like some living creature wrapped in peaceful slumber. On its further side was a little temple, whose delicate pillars and ornate front glowed with a rich lustre that chained the eye like a spell, and nearer by the palace of the king, 
reared its creamy walls out of the midst of the great garden of shrubbery that was flecked all over with a random shower of amber lights, a spray of golden sparks that lost their brightness in the glory of the moon and glinted softly upon the sea of dark foliage like the pallid stars of the Milky Way. Overhead, the stately columns, majestic still in their ruin, underfoot the dreaming city, in the distance the silver sea. Not on the broad earth is there another picture half so beautiful. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>